0: It is about a loss of innocence that everyone in some fashion goes through. Um, It is about childhood trauma, which a lot of people experience in different ways. Um, It is about the friendships we can form, even though they may be transient, that can help us survive those periods in our life, And, and we can look back at and value but also feel a sadness about or feel nostalgic for and this movie taps into all of that and again credit where it's deserved this is all in the novella as well
1: Welcome, friends, to episode 227 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And I'm writer Luke Elliott. And this week, we discuss Rob Reiner's 1986 film, Stand By Me. Okay, so you said that you didn't remember if you'd seen this film or not. Mm-hmm. Did you enjoy yourself?
0: Yeah, I had a great time. I, I'm pretty sure the only scene I've I've actually witnessed before is the train sequence. I thought for sure you'd say the leeches. Nope. I, I, I'm telling you, I don't know that I've actually seen this movie. There's so many movies that like were on as a kid that I I have these like memories of seeing. But when I go to watch them again, I'm like, no, no, I, I don't think I ever watched this dang thing. When I was a kid,
1: recognizing certain subtleties to a film, maybe certain aspects of filmmaking that I see nowadays. And Definitely none of that. Because <laughs> it, it's just such a different experience to watch as an adult and appreciate like a work. It kind of just feels like magic when you're a kid. You're like, yeah, people just make this kind of stuff, but people legitimately scene by scene, put this together and create this.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's that's one of the great sort of <laughs> tragedies of learning about film and learning about books is that a lot of the magic does go away. <laughs> um, Somewhat. It, 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 I think it's tr- it's traded with an appreciation of craft and an appreciation of skill, but the magic is never quite the same. And, that, and it's definitely true for books too, right? Like, before you start thinking about how these authors actually make them, like there's a magic in the book, right? And you can take it as as, as real and transportative in a way that is difficult for me now <laughs> uh, to do that.
1: And speaking of enjoying this, after director Rob Reiner screened this movie for Stephen King, he noticed that King was visibly shaken and wasn't speaking. He left the room and upon his return, told Reiner that the movie was the best adaptation of his work he had ever seen.
0: Wow. Okay. And we know that King was a big fan of Carrie... And um, I, I'm not sure this was '86, so um, I, I can't. I don't know how many there had been some others. I, I I know that much. Notably, The Shining. We know he didn't like that one. <laughs> yeah, but there had been others. You know, he, th- this guy's been being adapted for you know his entire career. Um, I, I did note that Stephen King's name does not appear until the very end of the the movie, which I feel like was a was a uh, strategic decision. Because Stephen King at this point is already synonymous with horror. And right. so I think if you put written by Stephen King at the start of this movie, everybody's going to be expecting a different kind of movie than what this movie actually is. Watching it
1: now and thinking about it just in terms of the movies that come out nowadays and what was popular then, what you could go see in a movie theater. I think, you know, nostalgia for that time period in the 80s was at an all-time high. Yeah. Because, you know, a lot of adults live through that, but... It's, it's so interesting to think that a film like this that's more about like a slice of life kind of getting back to what made somebody the person they are was was as successful as it was and was as well received. The I think that, that the casting was one of its strongest aspects and then you go into the filmmaker with Rob Reiner and he was really like becoming Rob Reiner at this point. We had already done Spinal Tap and a few
0: others. I don't feel like I have a good sense for like what he and who he is as, as a filmmaker, because he's done all these movies that are so different from one another. Like this movie is very different from princess bride. And, and I think I've seen misery. That's another movie. I barely remember. Um, but clearly a very different kind of film.
1: Right, you, um, When Harry Met Sally, A Few Good Men, Bucket List, Princess Bride, uh, The Sure Thing, Stand By Me, Spinal Tap, This Is Spinal Tap. This Is Spinal Tap is like a satire mockumentary thing. And it's amazing, it's incredible. But uh, you know who he reminds me of a bit is Ron Howard in the way that Ron Howard makes films that are successful in a wide range of different tones and on top of
0: that, They both were actors before directors, before Mm. becoming directors. Is this fair to say, uh, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it doesn't feel like he's the auteur director... Like we see other other kinds. In a sense, I think he was like,
1: I think you can kind of say the same thing about Ron Howard. I feel like people might be upset by that, but yeah. same kind of thing where their style, it's not instantly recognizable as
0: one of their films. It's not about but, them too. Because sometimes auteur, be, uh, being an auteur can seem kind of self-indulgent, right? Like this this is a movie that's got my fingerprint on every part of it, right? Like. It's it's kind of stuffy in a sense. It can be perceived that way, at least. Like I love those kind of movies, but I can get that perspective. Whereas this feels like a filmmaker who's like, it's not really about me. Like I'm directing it, but this is a movie that is about perfor- the performances and about the story, like the Stephen King's book. And, and yeah, I mean, I agree with
1: you, and I can respect that. I, I don't know if Rob Reiner would take offense to that or appreciate that, but yeah, I'm I'm there with
0: you. So my general thoughts uh, before we get into you know specifics. Is that this movie is incredibly faithful to Stephen King's book, and I wonder how many people even realize it's adapted from a from a book at all, much less a Stephen King novella. Um, and how many of the scenes that are iconic from this movie are right out of the book. <laughs> I, I continue to be surprised by this when we cover some of these big, big movies with like, I mean it's hard to say lesser known for a Stephen King project because Stephen King's such a well-known author but like The Body is not one I hear a lot of people talking about and uh Stand by Me is, right? Like it's it's a it's a movie that I think as far as popularity has outshined the novella, yet so much of what makes this movie great comes right out of the book. So I I just want to give I was given tons of credit to Stephen King who's already an author that I admire greatly but i was was kind of blown away by it
1: yeah i think we saw a bit of this in princess bride as well like rob reiner knows to kind of stick to what has already been successfully written you know i think there's something to that you know you want to add your own style to it but at the same time like if you can create a serviceable film based on something that's already existing and, and do it justice and bring it to the screen like why wouldn't you lean into that like that that you know that's half the job right there is like you know telling a, a good story and then the rest is bringing it to life
0: well and we, you know we've we've gone back and forth on this debate throughout the course of the podcast there's lots of different ways to tackle an adaptation and this is a way to do it that that can work especially when you have really good material which you know i would think that i i would claim that the body is um, so i want to i want to touch back on something you said too about how surprised you were at how much this movie caught on and I think it makes a lot of sense to me because it is I was looking at it and like this movie came out in 86 the story is set in 1956 there's a 30 there's like this phenomenon of the 30 year gap where uh it's like all the working professionals look back 30 years to when they were kids so a lot of the working professionals you know, in America are between like, like 35, 45, 50, right? That's a lot of the like middle of the career kind of people who are, who are driving the industry. And a lot of them are looking back at their childhood and feeling nostalgic for it. So you have those kind of people come in and make this movie and it's going to appeal to all those people. But then also it's going to appeal to children and young people same thing with Stranger Things, right? Like, Stranger Things caught on, same reason. Duffer Brothers, I believe,
1: came out and said that this was 100% one of the biggest influences on Stranger
0: Things. Stand by me. Absolutely. I mean, and they're hugely influenced by Stephen King in general, so that makes sense, too. Um, but yeah, I mean, th- this is a phenomenon that we've seen. I think we're going to start seeing, I mean, we've already seen some, but I think we are going to start seeing a lot more 90s movies coming out, like set in the 90s, as we as that window continues to move. But it's interesting how you you have to. It's like I said, it sounds easy, but it's tough to appeal to both kids today and then also the adults who are looking back at a certain time. And I think this movie definitely did that because there are a lot of people who feel nostalgic for this movie, uh, who are now looking back at their childhood and when they were a kid watching this movie, and that's what they're feeling—the nostalgia for is like their childhood because this movie was a part of that um so so it's all wrapped up in nostalgia and whenever you can tap into that it's really powerful a lot of these uh you know studios know that um and a lot of a lot of movies you know you can look at it as kind of a cash grab kind of thing sometimes but uh nostalgia is powerful as uh, was it uh, dom draper and mad men uh it's potent <laughs> um said and and it's true and uh I, I can see that's one of the reasons why this really caught on um because i think it did appeal to everybody Um, And and I do think also there's a really difficult tone you have to try and nail because in Stephen King's book, he wrote that novella, in my opinion, for adults, but he's fine with kids reading. Like you could tell he's like, he's like, yeah, kids can read this thing, but like in the same way that like kids can sneak into a rated R movie, um, like he's like aware that that's going to happen, but ultimately he's making the movie for adults. This movie tries to make it for both adults and kids at the same time. And that's a really tough thing to to manage, yet I think it's successful at doing that.
1: And mostly because, like you said, the adults at the time identified with it. Yeah. I also couldn't help but think about the actors in the film, right? They they go through an experience like creating a film in the similar way that their characters were. They were on a journey together with these kids and they went through this at a young time, at a formative time for them as actors. And then Thinking of them now, looking back at this movie. I
0: think there's been a a retrospective or something I saw advertised. I think so. I think there was the three remaining leads got together to discuss this movie, and, and looking back on it now, I, I I'd be a lot more curious in that now that now that we've covered it. You know, I'd be curious to hear what they have to say about it. Definitely. I I was looking into some
1: of the interaction that I've seen from them since this film, and somewhat recently, I think actually this year. Will Wheaton and Jerry O'Connell were together on a podcast or a show or something. And basically, um, somewhat recently, Will Wheaton had come out and talked about, like, he had a lot of trauma from childhood about acting and some of some of the things that went on, I guess, has, he felt... His mom was like forcing him into it and he didn't want to do it and it was emotionally abusive and so he came out and talked about that somewhat recently and then jerry o'connell like having seen him after he made those statements he said quote i heard you talk about some of the struggles you were going through during Stand By me and you know while i was 11 at the time that's an excuse i do want to apologize for not being there for you more when we were younger but i want to say to the bigger picture you never know when what someone is going through when you're with them He said, I don't feel guilt, but I just want to say I'm sorry I wasn't there for you more when you were younger. And then Will Wheaton went on to thank him and said, I deeply appreciate that, um, but you were 11. How could you have possibly known? Also, anyone in the audience, and he was talking to the people who were there in the live audience, I guess, who is a trauma survivor knows this. We're real, real good at covering up what we're going through. So just... To see like that bond between these two people who went through this experience, again, it's kind of like what the characters, what really what Gordy does at the end of the
0: film is like looking back at all of the stuff that they went through. Yeah. Um, well, and, and that speaks to sort of the universal appeal of a story like this, because it is it is about a loss of innocence that everyone in some fashion goes through. Um, it is about childhood trauma, which a lot of people experience in different ways, Um, It is about the friendships we can form even though they may be transient that can help us survive those periods in our life And, and we can look back at and value but also feel a sadness about or feel nostalgic for and this movie taps into all of that and again credit where it's deserved this is all in the novella as well.
1: It's that nostalgia, and I know nostalgia, it kind of has, it's starting to get like a bad reputation in in a sense, because it's like there's this bad side of nostalgia, this sort of like rose-tinted
0: glasses that you can't- And it can be manipulated, right? Like, I I don't think we, we we, we don't like that, you know, advertising agencies, you know, I referenced Mad Men earlier, are tapping into our nostalgia to make us buy products. Um, And I love Mad Men, by the way, because I I think that the the sort of inherent uh, conflict between art and advertising is is so essential to that show. Um,
1: uh, Just not to mention, it's incredibly well executed. One of the best shows ever.
0: Yeah, love that show. Um, I think nostalgia itself is a profound emotion. I guess, would you call it an emotion? I guess it is, right? And and yeah, I don't think we should shy away from it or or label it as somehow like bad, but um, I think you do have to recognize when nostalgia is maybe coloring something through the lens of time.
1: I also feel in art, it's important to not always live in the nostalgia too. Like we need to push forward. We need to create new. And and I think that's just as important.
0: Yeah. It's so, it's, it's like a drug. It can be so potent and so uh, uh, fun to like revel in nostalgia that you can, you can become obsessed with it and you can lose yourself to it. uh, And, and there is a danger I think inherent there. So while we're, while we're talking about some like fairly serious topics, Um, And we got to discuss River Phoenix. I'm going to ask you about him. I know a little bit, but not a ton. Um, He did did not live uh, very long. I know he died when he was young. Um, But before we even get into that, I wanted to circle back to something we touched on last week. We haven't discussed this at all. I'm I'm curious to know what you're able to find out. Um, You mentioned that last week you had an experience as a child where you stumbled on a body. Do you want to... Maybe we rehash that story a little bit at least because i don't know if everybody will have listened to the last episode right
1: so the overarching story is just that like uh near where luke and i grew up there's a library and by that library my friends and i found a sock that was attached to a body and it was this like i talked about how like i didn't i don't even remember like i think i've sort of suppressed a lot of it i don't remember a lot of it and what's interesting about that is when you were a kid when i was a kid yeah, yeah probably 12 or so so I've since called multiple people, trying to verify things and get more details on it, did some Googling. Um, and w- some something interesting is that a lot of the details weren't how I remembered them. Um, yeah, well that's memory for you. Yeah. So I didn't remember um, the location correctly. It was actually like slightly different location, and I may have also misremembered like that we went to my friend's house and his parents called the police. It wasn't his parents; apparently, it was somebody else in the neighborhood that was near near closer to where the, it was found. Okay. Um, couple other details. Parents had no memory of it. So you said you had told them about it, but they just right? Didn't but I, it. and I think it has something to do with the fact that it was more close to my friend's house. Right. And so I come like I probably told them in passing or didn't make a big deal about it. I called my friend and that's how I got some of these other details in terms of like where the, where the body actually was, like who was around and what was going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, fairly similar, but unfortunately not much more. So, um, Did some Googling. That was the thing that I really tried at. I was like, okay, these like internet detective sleuths can do this stuff all the time. Like, I got to be able to (laughs) figure this out. So I I searched as many keywords as I could. I searched the area. I was going through like police reports. Did you figure out what year it was? It was somewhere in the range of like 2003 to like 2005, if I was so weird. I was
0: like 18 when when that happened then, or right around that, like a senior in high school. And the other,
1: oh, the other, the other important detail is, um, He thinks that, my friend thinks that not much was made of it because it was potentially like a homeless person or something like that. Oh, okay. I was trying to find anything I could about bodies being found in that area, murders, deaths, anything like that. Right. I, I don't know how people do it. I assume that they have more details and maybe it's more widely reported sometimes, but... It, i couldn't find it so maybe if i like went to the police station and like started like they probably have files or something that they could go through a little more
0: yeah i mean it makes sense to me and and so often real life is not as neat and and tidy as as our narratives are right like in, in fiction so yeah it's maybe maybe not as satisfying as as a story like stand by me but yeah uh, that's that's real life for you i won't be a true crime detective anytime soon <laughs>
1: yeah i guess not So I wanted to ask you about a specific aspect of this film, and it's that the location has been turned from Maine to Oregon. Yeah. And a lot of it was filmed in Oregon, and I actually read that River Phoenix was from Oregon.
0: I had to look it up. So that was like the one thing I looked up because I've been trying not to. I know there's a lot of behind-the-scenes details for this movie, so I was very careful because I wanted to react to them authentically. but. I was like, is this movie actually filmed in Oregon? Because it looks like it, but I don't want to be fooled and then sound like an idiot. Because <laughs> right. so, I was like, this looks like Oregon, but I don't want to say that if I'm not sure. So I looked it up. It's in. It was filmed in a place, or, a lot of it was filmed in a place called Brownsville, which I uh, went ahead and plugged into my uh, driving app. Yeah, how is far? One and a half hours away uh, south. So I've probably driven by the exit to where you would take it to go off because I've driven to Eugene. And basically if you were to go Portland to Eugene, right before you get to Eugene, you take a exit and you go out a little bit to this place called Brownsville. Apparently it's known for this movie. A lot ask, of people you- have, have gone there and they have some some uh, local attractions around things that were done in this movie. So next time you come to Oregon if we wanted, we could we could drive down here. It's not that far away. There's I feel yeah. like there's another thing we talked about. Where we, it was like in Oregon that we could go drive to The Shining. Well, we did we did The Shining already, yeah. but I think there's a, a, a yet another one. I'd have to think back through the episodes. Yeah, we've done. another
1: one off the top of my head is The Goonies. Right, but we haven't covered the games. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't even think it's based on a book. But uh, yeah. I did you see then in your research, because I thought this was amazing, the town officially declared July 23rd as its permanent Stand By Me Day in 2013. So fans return each year. and there's Oh, a, I didn't see
0: that. That's cool.
1: Apparently, people will leave like a penny on the ground when they go there to kind of recreate where Vern picks ah. one up. So you leave one for the next person to come along and always find a penny around in, <laughs> in the
0: city. It's, I mean, it's so evocative, and I, I, I just want to go walk around in the woods after watching this. I'm like, I want to go like walk in the woods in Oregon because Oregon's so beautiful. Like, I, I like that they. I mean, Maine is beautiful too. I, and I've spent a lot of time in Maine as a kid when I was um, young because we would we would take family trips up there from Florida. But yeah, something about Oregon uh, is just is so scenic and Pacific Northwest, man. Pacific Northwest. Walking along the train tracks and seeing the mountains in the distance and the fields. Yeah. Um, it's so gorgeous. So um, I think it was, a, it was a good decision to, to do it. And yeah. I was glad it wasn't filmed in like what, like Vancouver, Vancouver or something. Yeah. Yeah, like, you know, it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> the,
1: the day that they have, the, the Stand By Me Day, they also, have, of course, have a pie
0: eating contest <laughs> uh, for that day. Uh-huh. Now I know what we're going to do when you come. I, I'm pretty sure I could beat you in a pie eating contest. I'm just going to go ahead and throw that out. I can eat a lot quickly.
1: <laughs> More than you would think. <laughs>
0: We'll have to see next live stream. <laughs> I was wondering how they were judging those pies to be "quote unquote" done, because yeah, those was gross.
1: Yeah, it was just, not only was it disgusting yeah. because they weren't eating any of it, but yeah, it was not even slightly like eaten. And the
0: fact that they just had to shove their face—like—is that how pie eating contests really are? Do you just shove your face with your hands behind your back into the into the pie? Because
1: yeah, if that's the case, I can definitely shove
0: my face into pie faster than you. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm pretty quick at that. Too. <laughs> it's, you know, it, it was pretty astounding to see uh, all these actors that I was familiar with. So young, Jack Bauer shows up <laughs> key for Sutherland, yeah. Sutherland, but like he's, he's, he kind of just is Jack Bauer to me now. Um, but this is him at the, I feel like this had to be around the time he did that. What's that vampire movie? The Lost Boys, the Lost Boys, because he yeah. looks very similar to this in those movies. This is very like edgy, badass Kiefer Sutherland, and he heartthrob he, yeah. young teenage heartthrob. He he makes a great Ace. He's scary, you know, and and he really embodies this this character of Stephen King's. Like, I, and I don't again, I don't know how many people recognize that this is a quintessential Stephen King villain that this ace character is, right? Like the young, like slightly, I mean, he's, he's insane, right? Like he is, he's way more dangerous than people realize. That's such a, a, a great Stephen King detail. He'll have like a group of friends, but there's like one guy who's actually legitimately murderous. And like, everybody doesn't know that, or some people do, but some people don't. And he's totally that kind of character. He's getting everybody into danger. And, and they do a great job of setting that up, so that he when he has that final confrontation, which we'll get to, uh, it's it's really well established that the the danger these kids are in. Then you got young Will Wheaton, uh, you got young Corey Feldman,
1: John Cusack is, has a cameo role. Basically, Richard Dreyfuss is yeah. the the older uh, Gordy.
0: Yeah, yeah, and we already mentioned Jerry O'Connell earlier, who, uh, you know, he's one of those faces, like, I know I've seen him in a ton of stuff, even though I, I can't really figure out what it is, but I def- I know yeah. I've
1: seen him in stuff. My point of reference for him is really bizarre and weird, but besides this, it's Kangaroo Jack. <laughs> I, don't <laughs> I don't think know I've if ever
0: seen that. Who, who's seen that movie, but hey, <laughs> if you're watching those kinds of movies in 2003, I see you. Yeah, and young Richard Dreyfuss is in this, which uh, I think the last time, correct me if I'm wrong, He's he's in Jaws, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's cool to see him back again.
1: Yeah. He's amazing in Jaws. See, like my favorite character. He's great in Jaws. And, the, you know, the boys, we talked about Jerry O'Connell a bit, Corey Feldman, uh River Phoenix, and Will Wheaton. So Will Wheaton takes us back to Ready Player One. He's the president in Ready Player One, if you remember well, that. Well,
0: and he, he narrated the audiobook, which is, yeah, I too. love that audiobook. Like, To me, that's the way to experience Ready Player One because the prose leads a lot to be desired. But Will Wheaton's enthusiasm as he reads that and he just he does such a good job.
1: Yeah. And I brought up the Goonies earlier and we talked about the Lost Boys, Corey Feldman and both of those. So like (laughs) there's a lot of connections here that we're we're already drawing. Sure is.
0: Uh, Okay, so I got to ask you about River Phoenix here. Um, He's I mean, he's one of the leads. He does a great job in this movie. He's one of my favorites of the child performances. Him, him, honestly, and Will Wheaton are asked to do a lot of heavy lifting for their age. They're, they're dealing with emotional scenes. They're crying. They're, like, breaking down. Um, you know, I wouldn't say they're perfect, but it's really good, and especially for someone their age. Um, and it's so hard to get these performances from of Kid's. Uh, so I, I, just want to give all the credit to them. And, and I think they really did kill it in this movie. Um, I mean,
1: they're the entire film, you yeah. know, there's nobody
0: else, but these four kids. So you, you know, like just the fact that we enjoyed the film walking away, like they, you know, they did their job. This movie lived and died on that. Cause if they right. had not nailed these performances, it wouldn't have worked.
1: And, uh, you know, we talked about kid kids acting many, many times, but you, yeah, like you said, river Phoenix and Will Wheaton had a lot like riding on them. There are a lot of yeah. emotional scenes. Um, the other boys got to play a lot, and like yeah. maybe had an emotional scene here or there. But they could
0: be kind of silly and and crack jokes at each other and do normal kid stuff. Whereas whereas these two had to get really emotional and yeah, and like the I read a lot into like the build up to
1: this movie was like Rob Reiner. You talked about the emotional scenes. There were some scenes where like reportedly he like to get them really scared or to get them really emotional like yelled at them and like all kinds of stuff like that, which oh, wow. was like holy shit. But yeah, it's the '80s, uh, it's the 80s so t- fits <laughs> totally fits the bill for that. Um, and then he, t- there were other things that I was reading about, like he did a lot to bond these kids together, so that you would buy it on screen. Like there was a mm. lot of like he created um, activities for them to do, like before the filming, like to get them together. Yeah, there was like mischief. I read all these stories about mis- they, they, the kids like put all the pool. Uh, furniture in the pool. So like you just like to fuck around at the hotel and stuff and like being dick- <laughs> like asshole kids and stuff and uh, Perfect all kinds of stories of like pranks and and things like that uh, But yeah, he did a lot to bond them together He created like trust exercises where they would guide each other around the hotel like blindfolded and stuff and wow. it, Just a lot to like to sell it so that like when you're on screen together You trust the other person in, in a similar kind of way or you know what the kind of what the person where they might be going you understand them more. And I think, especially for kids, like you kind of do have to get a little method with it. Yeah. And Rob Reiner and a lot of the kids have, have said themselves that these performances were basically them for the
0: time. A lot of, you know, a lot of themselves came out in these performances. I, I, that just really makes me think about something you mentioned earlier and how we don't recognize these moments in our lives that are so formative When they're happening but they must look back at this movie as their own personal coming of age story right and like one of a kind thing
1: i think i read reportedly it was like 60 days of shooting in oregon and they said uh reportedly it was like unusually sunny for those 60 days for them to get like consistency of filming it It looked like it was pretty sunny the whole time
0: when it gets sunny in oregon it gets real sunny yeah
1: But to stay that way for sixty days like almost. No, that's what I'm saying,
0: man. Like you when it gets when it gets in the sunny season, you'll be like, Are there clouds? Like, it could be, just be sunny for days and days and days. Yeah, and you think you, you, they didn't just go through all
1: of this together and then, like, go on with their lives. In a similar weird mirroring situation, River passed away. Yeah. And, like, they have to look back on it now thinking about that, thinking about his life and his legacy and the way that they interacted with him at the time as kids. And that character is the one who passes away in the movie as well. Right. They, their lives must be so informed by this formative time. 60, like I said before, 60 days of filming together with
0: buddies that you become friends with like
1: this. Yeah. And uh, you know, you think of it as like a long summer.
0: I I don't know if you've ever had experiences like this, but like when I went to Seton Hill, uh and, and when I went to Viable Paradise, a lot of these these I was older, obviously, you know, already an adult, but these really um formative moments where you're you're thrown into a group of strangers who have some sort of similar goals and you form fast friendships and and it's it's like such a high uh it's stressful but it's also just like you're really on like it's it's a really it stands out so much from the rest of your life that can often just be like the same kind of day over and over again like you always remember those moments and I'm sure that's the same way for them like they always remember that filming
1: there's I think a lot of people can draw parallels I can think of so for one in my professional life being on a set for any longer than you know a few days you start to, to create these bonds and like you know I've been on features that shot for 15 20 days. Yeah. So like you get to know those people and and then that 12 hours a day, 10 to 12 hours a day, trial by, not trial by fire but like super pressure cooking situations yeah. like really build friendships and like lasting friendships and you know those pers- those people inside and out. Yeah, so River Phoenix, I'm sure people know f- for the most part that he passed away. But there is I want to talk about some of the movies he was in. So Stand By Me was, I think, what really put him on the map. And then he was in Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade his young, young Indiana. Oh. He was in my own private Idaho. He was in the Mosquito Coast. And then his last film was uh, Dark Blood. And I haven't seen it, but I, I remember hearing about it when it came out because it came out in 2012. Like twenty years after he passed away, or something like that, and I think it's because wow. of his death that it wasn't released until later. So I haven't seen that. I, I really should check that. out. I was in sneakers. Also, the comparison I want to make is, I think, and, and this might be sort of not fair, but I think that if River doesn't pass away, he has a car- he could potentially have had a career similar to someone like Leonardo DiCaprio. They were coming up a- around the same time, or his or his brother, or his brother Joaquin. Yeah, yeah. But but it, the more of the traditional like heartthrob kind of oh, person, okay, like like leo was like you know leo was doing romeo and juliet and you know he i, I think river was was gearing up to be that kind of actor as well sure. and he had a lot of range
0: even even young you said he, you you told me earlier he was 23 when he died so i mean that's yeah. so early in your career like who knows yeah. who knows yeah basically he passed away
1: of an accidental overdose and it was in a club called the Viper Room. They left the nightclub. He was taken to the front and collapsed. But to get into the 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 whole story, apparently, like this was known to be an area where a lot of celebrities would would attend, and they would use a lot of drugs. And I think like Johnny Depp was part owner at the time when this happened. Um, he was there with his siblings. He was Joaquin Phoenix was there with him when all of this happened. Um, he had been, so I guess the story goes that he was clean for two months while filming Dark Blood, and then came back to LA and then immediately started going on like a bender. Unfortunately, when they brought him outside of the Viper room, uh, he collapsed and started convulsing. And, uh, Joaquin was actually the person who called 911 and was there on the phone with him. And I I read a little bit about like, uh, Joaquin's experience because I wanted, like, I think so much of River's death is talked about when people talk about Joaquin Phoenix and how much that how tough that would be and he said as much in this in this interview that I found he said certainly for me it felt like it impeded the morning process right in terms of people talking about it all the time and bringing it up and paparazzi things like that he said i feel like it virtually i feel like in virtually every movie that i made there was a connection to river in some way and i think that we've all felt his presence and guidance in our lives in numerous ways so you know very tragic and and for such a young person and i know it really hit i think it just hit his fans and and like the film community and everybody really hard yeah. at the time and it, it's like I think about it I think about it being so close to the time when because it was October of 1993 that's so close to when kurt Cobain died yeah. as well like I sort of think of these young like talented artists dying and I don't know if you remember what when Joaquin uh won best actor for the Academy Awards for Joker He went on stage and gave a speech and and one of the quotes that I wanted to read that I really liked was uh, he comes up and he says, when he was 17, my brother wrote this lyric. He said, run to the rescue with love and peace will follow. Wow! And I just thought that was so cool that like Joaquin, even in 2020, is continuing to like just bring that legacy back. Yeah.
0: Well, let's talk about the movie. Uh, it's a lot of somber stuff there to, to get into, um, and I and I know there's more. There's even more surrounding that stuff.
1: First thing I want to do is uh, very quickly. I just want to touch on Rob Reiner again. We have talked about him with Princess Bride, as we mentioned, but just to remind everybody, he's an American actor and filmmaker. As an actor, Reiner first came to pro- national prominence with the role of Michael Stivic on the CBS comedy All in the Family from 1971 to 1979, a, a performance that earned him two Primetime Emmy awards. And as a director, he was recognized by the Directors Guild of America Awards with nominations for the coming-of-age drama Stand By Me, the romantic comedy When Harry Met Sally, and the military courtroom drama A Few Good Men, the last of which also earned him a nomination for Academy Award for Best Picture. He has also received four nominations for the Golden Globe Award for Best Director. And I already mentioned a lot of his films earlier, but, you know, I think he's an important figure. Hey, you know, we talked about, I believe in Princess Bride, how he has the lineage from Carl Reiner to Rob Reiner, like famous comedian director as well into Rob Reiner. I mean, he's directed a lot of beloved films, Princess Bride and, and Stand By Me just those two we've covered are just like so, so many people's favorite movies right there. Those two, right. Yeah. yeah. So to get into the plot here, Gordy Lachance recalls a childhood incident when he, his best friend, Chris Chambers and the two other friends. Teddy Duchamp and Vern Tessio journey to find the body of a missing boy near the town of Castle Rock. Oh, one more thing I did want to mention. Rob Reiner named his production company Castle Rock. Oh, Um, So really interesting Stephen King connection there. And then also like to name it that and it goes on to have the legacy that it does with all these famous films.
0: And there's like a there's like a I mean, Castle Rock has appeared in other King projects where it's in Maine, right? Right. I guess it could make sense that there could be a Castle Rock, Maine and a Castle Rock, Oregon like we see. Portland Maine
1: Portland right. Oregon so. Oh speaking of that you're you're de- we're deviating from the synopsis <laughs> here a little bit but uh apparently the urban legend is that someone thought that they were talking about Portland Oregon when they were like developing the story they and then so they turned it into <laughs> so Portland <just> an accident. <laughs> yeah, accidentally in in Oregon rather than Maine. A well, happy little accident. So yeah, they they journey to find the body of a missing boy near the town of Castle Rock, Oregon, during Labor Day weekend in September 1959. Twelve-year-old Gordy's parents are too busy grieving the recent death of older brother Denny to give Gordy much attention. While looking for money that he buried beneath his parents' porch, Vern overhears his older brother Billy talking with his friend Charlie about finding the body of the missing boy outside of the town. When Vern tells Gordy, Chris, and Teddy what he heard, the four boys decide to go looking for the body. After Chris steals his father's pistol, he and Gordy run into local hoodlum Ace Merrill and Chris's older brother Eyeball Chambers. Ace threatens Chris with a lit cigarette and Eyeball steals Gordy's Yankees cap, which was a gift from Denny. The four boys begin their trip, and after stopping at a junkyard for water, they are caught trespassing by owner Milo Pressman and his dog Chopper. They escape over a fence, and an enraged Teddy tries to attack Milo but is restrained by the other boys. The four continue their hike, and Chris encourages Gordy to fulfill his potential as a writer despite his father's disapproval.
0: Wow, yeah, so uh, a lot to react to there, but I, I immediately was started thinking about how we didn't give enough weight when we reacted to the novel, to the novella, that we probably should have, to Gordon's brother's death. I think we mentioned it, but like, that's really what, like, a lot of this, like, coming to terms with death and and wanting to see this body and like the struggles he's having at home. So much of that in the character of Gordon is about his brother's death and why he's so uh, driven to see the body. And I I thought that early on because I think this movie really tries to highlight that and make it very central. Um, In the, in the novella, I would say it is still very important, but there's other things going on. Um, it's a piece of a, of a larger perhaps puzzle, but um, I, I, or even early on I was like, oh yeah, they're really bringing that front and center that makes sense, and then by the end of the movie I was like yeah, they're really making that front and center that's what this movie's all about um, and, and I think that became clear, so I think that's just smart right, to seed that early, so much so that I was immediately picking up on it
1: I think s- this film almost makes Gordy even more of a main character, if that's even possible like something about it makes it like I, I think Vern and Teddy have less to do in this because in in favor of Chris and Gordy really like layering up their characterizations and and like uh, making it clear who they are. And and it's so interesting to me. I know we talked about it last week, but this idea of friends like leaving your life and, and the way that they were, they're so close, like seeing these kids all together, they're so close. And then the way that it all splits up eventually is just a part of life and so profound.
0: I think they're it was clear that something changes. We're skipping ahead here, <laughs> uh, but it, it, you're talking about friendships. I think something changes in the final scene. The fine, no, sorry, not the final scene, but the final confrontation, mu- confrontation when Vern and uh, Teddy both flee, and I think their their friendship. As much as they say, oh, all's forgiven, don't worry about it. I, I just don't think their friendship ever recovers from that moment. And him and Chris remain friends. Gordon and Chris remain friends, but the other two drift away. It's not like he's not friends with them anymore. It's just like the moment where it truly mattered, those two didn't step up. And that just, I think never they never quite recover in the same way from that.
1: Right. I think that was more clear to me in the, in this story though, in the no, the novella, like it yeah. was so, in the film, it's left to be more subtle. Like you really got to pick up on. Yeah. That. I
0: think they're matter at, I, I, I think the, the, uh, uh, Chris and Gordon are more upset with the other two kids for running away in the, right. in the novella, but. I th- I picked up on it, I think, even in the movie.
1: Right. Oh, I have a couple of, like, behind-the-scenes things that we do definitely need to talk about. And one is the, the name change, right? So, The Body or Stand By Me. Yeah. And um, I was reading that, apparently, according to the screenwriter and, like, some of the executives at Columbia Pictures, they felt like The Body sounded like either a sex film, a bodybuilding film, or another Stephen King horror Yeah, film. yeah. It sounds like a Stephen King title.
0: Yeah. Yeah, when you hear the body, you think, "Oh, creepy." That's going to be about a dead body. It's all about the dead body. That's not what they were trying to focus on here. I, I mean, "Stand By" Me is an interesting title because it's like clearly referencing the song, right? But I guess it also is referencing like we just talked about, Chris stand, Chris and Gordon stand by each other,
1: right? I, and I guess there's some some another urban legend around this that that Kiefer Sutherland was playing that song on a guitar or something like that. And and Rob Reiner heard him playing that and and like kind of got in his head there and decided to call it Stand By Me. Let's talk about that song, too, because I mentioned just in the lead up to this project uh, for the film that like that that song is like so close to me. I I, and I know it's maybe a little cornball. Some people don't really like love it. But to me, like it's like always had a super uh, nice place in my heart and Hearing it used as like an instrumental score in this film is really fun. And then hearing it as the credit song, I think this was like a trend in the eighties to have like the, the, you know, the title of the movie also be the final song at the end (laughs) of it. Um, and just another reason why this this song always seems to come back in my life a little bit. And there was a period of time where and I'm going to put some pieces together for, for something we've been talking about recently. Um, so Final Fantasy 15 came out <laughs> and say what you will about the game. There, there are some cool things about it, but it's about four friends on a journey together. Oh, yeah. And it's and it's so it's very much reminiscent of Stand By Me. So they use the song Stand By Me in the marketing and they had a new rendition done by Florence and the Machine. Oh, cool. Yeah, and it's amazing. I highly recommend checking it out. And
0: I'm a, I'm a fan of Florence and the Machine, so I like yeah. that. I'll have to check that out.
1: One of my favorite songs. It's an incredible rendition and I just like uh, that this song is just like I don't know how to describe it. It's probably weird and like unique to myself, but it's just one of those songs that really like sticks in my sticks in my brain.
0: So with regards to the score for me, um and the and the and the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Um when I was probably 8 to 12 that range i had a little walkman and a little cassette player a couple different little cassette players i guess at different times little little boombox, and i had a collection of cassettes not very many because i was very young right and i didn't re- i hadn't really developed a lot of taste in music yet so it was mostly just like whatever cassettes my parents had and one of my favorite ones to grab from them was a collection of hits from the 50s and 60s. I don't know if that was what it was called, but that's what it was. And a lot of the songs that are in this movie were on that tape. So I was immediately having nostalgia for that particular time in my life even though I didn't I didn't grow up in the 50s and 60s, yet it still is nostalgic for me and my childhood for that reason.
1: Well, and and that comes back to this whole like child children picking up on the nostalgia from, you know, Stranger Things and Stand yeah. by Me and things like that is like they watch it when they're a kid and then they can get this like weird dual nostalgia yeah. thing where it's like, it I like
0: it like carries on the nostalgia into other generations. <laughs> right. Which is one of the reasons why people like making movies about their childhood is they feel like that's an important time that needs to, you know, that should be maybe celebrated in some ways. And, and of course you, then you have the reverse side of that of like, there was a lot of stuff going on. Maybe we shouldn't be celebrating, but um, you know, that, I think that is the impetus, right? Like to make sure that that lives on. Another moment that, uh, it's just a little one-off, but um, there was this phrase, he said, uh, that's so funny I forgot to laugh. He says to, mm-hmm. he says to him, and that was something that I definitely heard when I was a kid, definitely said myself. Um, so there's a lot of these little moments. There was the pinky swear, which I was yeah. I was like, okay, I did pinky swears when I was a kid, but for me, we always shook pinkies.
1: Yeah, it's way different to do the weird. He had, thing He did in the like air. a
0: weird like finger in the air and like wave maybe it. maybe like, kissed, kinda, like, it, or kissed it or something. Yeah, it was very strange. Um, and then like the whole like give me some skin thing, where they would do this like slow skin like drag. I actually like that.
1: I thought that was cool.
0: I, I, that's okay. I, that's not something we did as a kid. I can tell you. No, that. it's
1: not something I did <laughs> as a kid. But it's something like so. So I kept thinking about
0: like how they did a good job of showing like. Not in a weird way, in any way, but like the intimate... I mean, granted, the- this was a different time, so it wasn't supposed to be the things that happened when we were kids. I was just reacting in that way.
1: Right, right. The the like intimacy of like you know grabbing your buddies and giving them a nugi. Oh, two for flinching. Like, that was one. Two for flinching. Yeah. But like some of the things that were like a little more sweet, where they'd like grab each other on the shoulder, things like that, that you would just do yeah. as, with your friends, you know, that were so natural and so like genuine. Mm-hmm. And because um, that toxic masculinity hadn't settled in yet. But that's the thing it had. <laughs> but like some some pure things, some pure things can sort of pierce through that veil and just like, yeah, yeah. you know, it's, it's a sweetness about innocence of childhood or something. I mean, and
0: that, that that's like, if you want to look at it from gender, a lot of this is about how when you're young and a man, you're allowed to have close intimate friends. But when you're an adult man, you are not. <laughs> right, um, which and, is bullshit, and, obviously. Yeah, it's bullshit and, and uh, we should fight against it. But I think a lot of that is the subtext of this movie. Like that's why it feels so special when we look back at those times. For some people, yeah.
1: Oh, going back to the song, I should have mentioned this before. Um, Benny King is the original artist. And um, it was originally released in 1961, and it was re-released at the time of this film. When it was re-released, it reached the top 10, peaking at number nine in the fall of 1986. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, so just to see it come back around like that. Another weird thing, we're getting to the junkyard part, but I, I... Wanted to look at the math here a little bit, and it is uh they had two dollars and thirty-seven cents in 1959, and that equates to roughly like twenty-two dollars and fifty cents, maybe a little more. That was because this is from December of 2021. Okay. Um. So it could be a bit more, but twenty-two dollars, you know, for for a bunch of kids right now, yeah. definitely get you some burgers and some coke.
0: Yeah, <laughs> as I say, they buy a bunch of ground ground beef, I guess.
1: <laughs> when they cross a railroad bridge, Gordy and Vern are nearly killed by an approaching train but jump off the tracks and escape serious injury. That evening, Gordy tells the fictional story of David Lardass Hogan, an obese boy who is constantly bullied. Seeking revenge, Lardass enters a pie-eating contest and throws up deliberately, inducing mass vomiting among contestants and the audience. Just as a side note, this is... I had never read Lardass out loud for through this whole project <laughs> until just now, and it felt wrong to read it like that. So... Uh, Continuing this, that night, Chris confides to Gordy that he hates being associated with his family's reputation. He also admits to stealing milk money at school. However, he tells Gordy he later confessed and returned the money to a teacher. Despite this, Chris was suspended and the teacher did not turn the money into her superiors. The next day, the boys swim across a river and discover it is filled with leeches. Gordy faints after finding a leech in his underwear. After more hiking, the boys locate Ray Brower's body. The discovery is traumatic for Gordy, who asks Chris why his brother Denny had to die and claims his father hates him. Chris disagrees, asserting that Gordy's father simply does not know him.
0: Wow. Okay. So a lot of big scenes to react to here. I think let's go chronologically. Talk about the train sequence. Um, that was the one that stood out to me. I, I think I had heard that the movie Stand By Me was about a boy who had been hit by a train. And mm-hmm. then I remember seeing this scene and thinking that, like, the kids were going to get hit by the train. <laughs> like, I was like, that's what this movie's about. Holy shit. I can't believe that. How could they hit kids with a train? Um, yeah. And it's scary, right? Like, the idea of being trapped. I remember that really scared me. Like, the idea of being trapped on a train or on, on a bridge where you can't jump off because it's too high up and there's a train coming. And you can't run fast enough. Like, that's the kind of stuff you have nightmares about. Um, and, and I think the added layer that made it even scarier was the gaps between the boards. Like that was creepy. Like they were big, like you could easily fall between those. Yeah, I don't know
1: how much time you spent around railroad tracks as a kid, but I spent too much around railroad tracks <laughs> as a kid. Like in hindsight, it's it's kind you of you and Stephen King, man. I think. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know what the hell. I mean, it's it's a fascinating thing, right? My cinematography brain turns on, and you think of like those those leading lines that go to the vanishing point when they hit the horizon. There's something very like feels very grounded.
0: It's also it's also like a forbidden. Uh, there's so, there's True. an appeal to something where it's like you're walking somewhere where you're not supposed to be.
1: Where there will be a train in moments, and
0: there's danger. Yeah, there's danger there, and then
1: you crush pennies under the under the wheels and stuff, all kinds of stuff like that. But
0: yeah. it's very American if you think about, you know, coming west on the you know the, the railroad race, and the, they're building these railroads out west and all this stuff. So I think there's something caught up in that.
1: Yeah. Uh, nowadays, I can't help but think about how dangerous it is to have a film crew near a railroad track because these in, the, there have been some horrific accidents near railroad tracks. One that we should
0: say. We're talking about how cool it is, but, like, it's legitimately dangerous. God, I just had a dark thought, but, like, there had to be some accidents from this, like, people seeing this movie and wanting to go out and play on tra- train tracks.
1: Probably. So, to, to there are, like, when we teach set safety for f- in film, um, there's a story that, that was this girl named Sarah Jones. And this is not that long ago but basically the location scout, the director, some, some people were irresponsible and basic and she was part of the crew. She, she was a PA or something. And um, she got trapped on the tracks and ended up passing away And for a film. And I can't help but think about that with the filming of this film. And then I started thinking about when this movie came out, 86, and then I remembered the Twilight Zone movie that we yeah. talked about. And that was 83. And so I went digging and I and I read some stuff. Uh, the disaster that struck the set of The Twilight Zone had a direct influence on the making of this film. Because children were involved, restrictions on tr- children working in films was seriously tightened after 1983. And director director Rob Reiner found it very, very difficult to shoot certain scenes involving the children. Fortunately, with the help of stand-ins for the boys and special effects, he was able to get what he wanted without any danger to the children. There
0: was a really clear shot when they were running on the bridge and the... the uh train was behind them like okay I think it's a green screen or something. It was
1: so, so I'll tell you what that is actually okay. too because I, I my, the nerdy again cinematographer side. Um they use the six hundred millimeter lens. Basically what happens is as you get farther with focal length, the the perceived distance between an object and whatever's behind it is squashed. And so they they're at the end of the tracks, the train is actually coming. They have the boys way, way, way in front of it probably safely like ready to be grabbed by whoever hopefully um but they're zoomed in extremely far on that on that telephoto 600 millimeter lens to get that effect and it does look a little wonky right it looks weird yeah it looked like a green screen to me or something yeah but that's how they did it and i also read that they had um the stand-ins they had like adult stand-ins who who would swap in for the children and things like
0: that especially for like jumping off of the you know, it down into the rocks and stuff. Probably. There was a lot.
1: There's a lot of like little interesting special effects that I noticed that I, m- others might not. But some of the times that they were showing like the mountains and the trees and things like that, you could see they used to do these like f- paintings that they would put mm-hmm. in front of a they would put in front of a lens that would sort of create more depth or like a mid sort of a midpoint in, in the scene. And uh, you could tell there was a, there was one scene in particular when they looked out from the train tracks out at the expansive forest and mountains and everything mm-hmm. and like the middle just like was shaking a little bit probably from like the wind or something like
0: that and you could tell like oh that's that's <laughs> or they been put you know, there. It could be they had to cover up something i would think too right like <laughs> if you're looking at a, a countryside and it's supposed to be 1986 and there's some like modern billboard or something you that's yeah. probably times you have to cover things up yeah it's possible moving along with some of the scenes you mentioned the pie eating contest i couldn't believe was in this movie um it's such a random moment from the novella, which by the way, right out of the novella. If you haven't read it, I I'm gonna, this is not going to be the last time I recommend you go read the actual novella. Um, this, this is right out of there. It's a story that Gordon tells. It's a story that he writes eventually and we read it as, and, and it's basically exactly this. Um, so this story, this, this vomit story is right out of the mind of Stephen King. <laughs> and um, it, was, it was done in a way that I think was definitely supposed to be comical. Like the, the vomit was, I think, really obviously fake. Like, it didn't seem to me like they were trying. Well, you can
1: see the tube. Yeah, like, like
0: it didn't seem like they were trying to convince you that it was actually coming out of their mouths. Yeah. So I
1: read about this. Uh, Rob Reiner agonized over the pie eating scene because he was having trouble trying to envision what kind of writer Gordy would become and how that would play out as a 12 year old. He said, quote, ultimately, in my mind, he became Stephen King and Stephen King is a great storyteller. And most of the stories he tells are supernatural or there's horror involved. He decided to go over the top with it and make it rather cartoonish the way it would appear in a young boy's mind. According to Reiner, the audience went crazy for it,
0: justifying his decision to leave it in. I mean, okay, Reiner, but like this is is Stephen King. So he just he just adapted what was in the novella because Stephen King was talking about himself here. I, I talked about this last week. Like, I think this is Stephen King looking at his own writing and saying like in a way it's kind of like a this is kind of the stuff i write and he's kind of poking fun at himself i think here and uh through the, through gordon because we said earlier that gordon is like a thinly veiled stephen king stand-in right
1: i assume that reiner was in on on all of that as well yeah. but he was like i put my own spin on it but uh had to note that the vomit was made from cottage cheese and blueberry mix.
0: Wow, I saw the blueberries. (laughs) And everybody was throwing up blueberries, which I guess everybody would have been eating blueberries at this contest. But it is something visceral about seeing it play out on... It was pretty disgusting yeah. yeah it was it's a weird moment i couldn't believe it was in the movie i, I can i get that like audiences loved it and it, this this scene appeals to the kids like we were talking about like what scenes appeal to the kids what scenes appeal to the adults i think this is one that like the kids are i'm not saying adults might not enjoy this they might but like this feels like all the 12 year olds are, are loving this <laughs> who saw this movie <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean that's definitely what they they left the theater talking to, to their friends about it, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I want to talk about the leeches. Um Got to. So this is an, this is a detail out of the novella. However, they do more with it in in the movie. Um it's it's kind of referenced that they're swimming and then he says, "Oh, and if we had known what those dark shapes were, we wouldn't have been so like joy, joyous." And then it like it skips ahead. This like we see them all over their bodies. It's it's kind of a horror show and then we get them ripping them off we see a lot of blood and then we get the the leech in the whitey tidies and then we get the blood on the hand of this big fat leech that he pulls out that was that was gross um have you ever had a leech on you
1: no never thank fucking christ okay
0: i have um however it didn't like it was i got i i caught it early enough to get it off before it like had really sunk in um right. and i remember it just like left a little left a little circle where was this this is in maine So I was wondering, because speaking about Maine and Stephen King grew up in Maine and like they're a thing in Maine for sure. It was in the lake. There was a family, uh, lake house that we would go to in Maine and they would be, if it back when there were wooden docks, because wooden docks were notorious for this. A lot of, there's been a lot of change away from them, but like these wooden docks, a lot of leeches love to hang out under there. And so if you, if you'd swim around near the dock, they'd always say, don't swim near the dock (laughs) because you'd get leeches on you. And I remember my older brother, Got several on him and bigger ones, and they got like more attached. And like, I had fucking nightmares about leeches after that because I had just been in the lake and I was just like lucky that it wasn't as bad for me. Um, they are weird creatures, uh, very disturbing. And uh, yeah, the 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 looking at looking down into his underwear and <laughs> the horror on his face that was a that was a visceral sequence and uh i'm sure that that is something that everybody remembers who's seen this movie is my is my yeah. guess
1: the only time i've seen um leeches use is in for medicinal purposes yeah, like and they know, still gotta, use them
0: for that Some, do they really <laughs> uh, they do still sometimes have have a um I I, i'm not a doctor so i can't explain it but there's like something about the way they extract blood that is actually useful
1: i really hoped that that was not the case i thought that was a urban legend or no really? no I mean,
0: I think it's pretty rare but I think there is it was a thing back in the day it was a thing back like, in the day but I think there is still specific times where they they can use them because there's something about the way that they extract blood that is still useful uh, I, I I, again you'd have to have like an actual medical person on to explain it but
1: I'd prefer to just contact a phle- <laughs> my local phlebotomist but you know <laughs> hey to each their own so apparently, Stephen King said on the DVD commentary or some special feature that this actually happened to him. So you were right on with that stuff with Maine. I believe it. And uh, another myth about
0: this film is that the leeches were real. No, they're um, not real. I could tell you. But I could tell you, looking at them, they're not real because I've seen real leeches on people on my brother's back, and I can tell you that those were not real because they look. They actually look way grosser than that, if you could believe it. <laughs> they were too consistent. Is something I would say, too. They were all, like, the same size for the most part. And in and, and real life, they have a lot of variety in, like, their length and width and all this stuff. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, apparently, like, they, they stuck them on there with cement, this, with rubber cement, and it, like, would mess with their skin and leave red marks. And Will Whedon recounted later on that uh, he went to, like, a water park, and one of the employees, like, wouldn't let him go down the slide because they thought he had some sort of, like, contagious skin disease or something <laughs> like that because he had these spots all over him from
0: the movie. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Uh, I was happy to see the deer made it into the movie, this moment of tranquility that was very important to Gordon. Um, Again, like I can see why Stephen King would look at this and go, holy cow, this is so faithful and good. Um, They really captured what I was trying to do here. And plus, like, I I think there's a lot of emotion. You know, Uh, we we got into some of the accusations of um, of plagiarism last week when we talked about the novella. If you want to know more about that, I recommend listening to the episode. But I do think, you know, we talked about all the things from Stephen King's own life that he was clearly working through in this story. And um, I think seeing that had to be emotional for him when when it feels right. Because we talked about on The Shining, I think that's one of the reasons why he didn't like The Shining is I think there was so much of him in Jack Torrance that the changes to Jack Torrance offended him in a way like it was fundamentally not the story he was trying to tell in the book um which is a huge topic if you want to listen to us talk about that listen to our shining episodes <laughs> um but you know what i mean like i, I can see why as the author he's going to appreciate something that's so faithful and and honestly is trying to strike the same tone trying to tell the same story that he was telling
1: there's a lot of dark stuff in this right there's a yeah. lot of moments of like dealing with death danger abuse right? <laughs> Yeah, abuse. Yeah, trauma. There's this one moment where Gordy sort of like gets to see this like peacefulness, right? Like something different in the world other than all the other. Be- his dad hates him or whatever, and or he thinks his dad hates him. So, so like that that sort of moment ma- making it in. You know, that's the kind of moment that like you want to see in a film it, because without that, it's this sort of like doesn't feel as lived in and as real.
0: Yeah, it's a great detail from the book. So I, I absolutely. Yeah, commend them for keeping it in. It just feels like the kind of thing that you could see getting cut. It's like, ah, it's kind of tricky. We got to figure out how to get a deer and like, you know what I mean? Like I could see it getting cut, but I'm glad that they he made sure to keep it in there. It's not as easy as it seems to stay faithful, I think, to a book. I think there's a lot of times where there's going to be pressure to cut things, even though you know it's important. And you have to like stick to your guns.
1: Well, and like you said, there's a lot of stuff, even in a story like this, that you have to actually pull off on screen. Yeah, you Pull off children being close to a train as it's coming, yeah. and you pull off getting a deer. Like he said, like things logistically, like actually getting this stuff done. Sometimes it's easy to yeah. change things. And,
0: and, and if they didn't actually have a deer, like by Will Wheaton, like they made it look like they did. It, to me, it looked like it was real. So, I, you know, like it was, they were in the same scene together. Well, I actually read that it was like a guy in a suit and he just had the head <laughs> of the deer and he walked it out. <laughs> Yeah, I buy that. <laughs> so,
1: all right, here's this next part, the, the final piece of the puzzle. Ace and his gang arrive, announce that they are claiming the body and threaten to beat the four boys if they interfere. When Chris insults Ace and refuses to back down, Ace draws a switchblade. Gordy gets the gun, fires a warning shot, and stands beside Chris with the gun pointed at Ace. Ace and his gang retreat, vowing revenge. The four boys, realizing that it would not be safe for anyone in this case to claim credit for finding the body, agree to report it to the authorities via an anonymous phone call. They walk back to Castle Rock and part ways. Back in the present day, adult Gordy is writing a memoir of the journey. He states that Vern and Teddy drifted away from him. Vern married after high school, had four children, and became a forklift operator. Teddy tried to get into the army several times but failed due to his eyesight and his ear. He later ended up in jail and started doing odd jobs around Castle Rock as part of his parole. Chris chose to take the college prep courses with Gordy in school, and although he struggled, he made it as a lawyer with the two eventually drifting apart. However, while attempting to break up a fight in a restaurant, Chris was stabbed to death. Despite not having seen Chris in over a decade, Gordy adds that he will miss him forever. Gordy ends his story with the words, I never had any friends later
0: on, like the ones I had when I was 12. Jesus, does anyone? Yeah, and then he goes outside and plays with his kids, uh, which we'll, we'll circle back to that moment, but I want to progress chronologically, and I think we got to start with them finding the body, which is an a, a important moment in the in the movie, So. They were walking up to where they would eventually find it, and all of the, like, forest around them was blowing in the wind, and um, I thought that was evocative. It reminded me of how there was said to be, like, a storm coming in the novella, so again, like, kind of right out of the novella. um, I thought it was weirdly quiet, but it may have been by design. I I did turn my volume up, like, enough to where I was like, okay, I can hear some rustling, but it was very faint. Um, and so there was almost like disquieting to see the forest moving around them without hearing the sound of wind. Uh, I don't know if that was on purpose or just an accident, but like it was kind of weird and, and kind of unsettling. And then they, I feel like if, it, if you notice it, it was on purpose. Probably. Right? Like, yeah. I mean, I'll give yeah. them credit for it. Um, and, then, and then they find this body. And um, I, on one hand, I got to give them credit because they show it. Um, it's definitely pretty, pretty gruesome but but measured. It's not nearly as horrific as kind of the description that we get from Stephen King. Yeah, lack of bugs. And I don't think it... Yeah, it doesn't live up to the reality of a body that's been laying out for days. Um, but, like I said, you're trying to find a way to make a movie for kids and adults at the same time, and if you get really grody... With a body that's gonna make that everybody's gonna say, Don't let your kids see this movie, they're gonna have nightmares. You know what I mean? Which is probably already being said, but it would have been even more because of this one moment. Um, so, so I understand why you maybe pull back from it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I wanted to, it, I think it's important that the audience actually sees the body and we don't completely shy away from it because that's what this whole thing's been about. And you could have seen them like just show the reactions or something and not really get like show it, but. They really show it. And it is a kid. I thought maybe they would change it, but no, no, it's a kid their age, which I think is important too. He's, he, he's had his life ended. It reminds him of uh, Gordon, of his brother. Um he, That's why he has this big moment where he talks about, you know, how his parents treat him with Chris after this happens. It's like, it's been building to this. Um And, you know, again, I think they set that up early and they, and they deliver on it here. It's, it's maybe more broad than the novella, which I thought was a little more subtle in the way that it was interacting with that particular stuff, but um, I liked it, and it's, you know, this, this is a quick movie, it's an hour and a half, and they do, you know, some solid storytelling and, and efficient storytelling, uh, despite all the different adventures these kids get up to, and that all leads to the confrontation
1: there's some changes here, coming up here yeah. at the end but for the most part it's been very faithful to this point point. and yeah in this scene i think they played it right i think they played it to their audience that they were going for and um yeah you got to show the body like confronting death in this way is like co- sort of what it's all about and seeing gordy you know come to grips like I-, I talked in our last episode about like there a lot of these kids have epiphanies along the way like chris i think realizes that like Um, authority isn't always going to be right, you know what I mean? Things aren't always fair in that way and, like, sort of grows from that and realizes that, like, the authority of his father who who doesn't want him to get smarter and some of these people he can push back against that and it could be for for his own benefit.
0: There is something powerful to having another kid tell you straight up your parents are wrong about this, right? Like, or your parents are wrong to do this because, like, as a kid, like, so much... You, often you believe that your parents are right about everything. And to actually have someone state flat out, no, they're wrong about this, you know, that's powerful. And it this this conversation, like, it's very on the nose. Like, they're talking about his brother. They're talking about his family life. But, like, I feel like they've earned it, even though it is so direct. And there is something well, like to be said. like you said, they kind
1: of like, made... Well, like you said, they kind of made it more inherently about Denny's yeah. passing and how that affects Gordy in the first place. So, like, broadening that in the very beginning of the story too. And there
0: is something to be said in writing for like coming out and saying the damn thing. And and sometimes like that's something I have to remind myself too. <laughs> you can get you get too cute dancing around subjects, and you know, obviously, there's there's times to do it and there's times to not. But like sometimes coming out and saying it is not a bad thing. I do think they did. There's the sequence of the chi- game of chicken that Ace plays where I think they really sell how unhinged he is and how scary and how um kind of insanely brave he is to where when he's faced with a gun, we first off totally buy that he doesn't immediately back down, but also like we don't know if he's going to back down at all because we just saw him drive right at this truck, right? Just to win a stupid game. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of smart storytelling that leads up to that. Um, were, I think, fixed to the kids' perspectives, to Gordon's perspective in the novella, so we don't get that scene. Um, and I thought that was a good addition. Yeah,
1: definitely. So another major change here, too, is I believe in the, the novella, Chris holds the gun the entire time, and, and Gordy doesn't have this moment of, like, I think he has more growth in this situation, but I also buy Chris holding the gun in the novella a little more, just, like, based on the characters.
0: Yeah, I... I I do like this change. I think it, it does give a uh, pivotal moment of growth to, uh, to Gordon and a chance where he really stands by Chris here, right? Like Chris is the one who just in his own bravery is refusing to back down. And then Gordon is the one who comes to his aid and, and makes it so that he can actually have a chance in this moment. Um, so I like this change. yeah, because you're right. in the book it is it is just Chris who has the gun. Um, but but like Gordon is still standing by him and it still provides the same assistance emotionally even if not he's not the one wielding the gun. But yeah, that is a subtle I mean, I guess that's a pretty big change, but like it, it changes the way this plays out.
1: Yeah, and then the fallout of this too is like they specifically say in the movie like we're gonna get you for this, we're gonna beat you up. And In the book, we get yeah. that, and I think that 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 like uh, consequence to their whole journey, and like that that like they all sort of have to deal with. I think all of them they get all, beat all up get in the book. up in the book. Yeah,
0: yeah. I thought we were going to see that, but we didn't see it. Yeah.
1: To not have it in the movie feels like there's like a there's a piece of the puzzle that like they all went through. That's another thing that they went through all together, even though they were separated when they all basically got jumped or yeah. whatever.
0: Um, Do you think the movie is telling us that he does let it go? Oh, I don't think so, but maybe because it it is kind of a weird thing to not address. I don't think there was even like a, a summing up line about them all getting beat up, but I could be wrong about that. But I don't think there was. Um, I don't think there yeah. was. Yeah, it's interesting. I wonder what people who like have only seen the movie if they think that that for whatever reason ace just did forget it or if we just aren't privy to it
1: yeah yeah and then i think probably the biggest change and most shocking to me was that Vern and teddy uh live on in this story which
0: is less depressing i mean they both they don't sound like they 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 don't like escape the town as we talked about in our last episode a lot of this is about like being kind of stuck and and not having upward mobility and, and not being able to leave a town that you maybe would like to leave um But also that there's an inherent, like, push and pull between wanting to leave and, like, also being comfortable at where you grew up. So we talked about that a lot on our last episode, so I don't want to rehash it too much here. But, like, uh, yeah, having them survive and it seems like uh, grow up to have at least decent lives. I know uh, I think Teddy is the one who who went to prison for a while, but then he's, like, working as a handyman. Um, So maybe not the greatest life. Uh, that said that he, uh, he's like a father of four or something. So it I mean, seems like, you know, probably had a pretty happy life, has a pretty happy life. And then, yeah, the only one who's died is, is Chris, um, in the novella, if you haven't read it, um, that all three of them are now dead at the point in which Gordon is writing back about this, um, through, uh, different ways. Uh, basically Vern, I think there was like an accident with a fire. Um, uh, Teddy was killed in a car accident where he, uh, was, I think he was drunk driving something like that. And some people with him got killed too. And then, uh, Chris dies in the same way. It's like basically right out of the book. So, um, in, in a way, the, the novella has a darker, like, and we also talk about them all getting beat up. So in a way, like the, the, the novella felt darker to me and less sort of hopeful, and we also don't get this final scene where Gordon goes out to play with his kids that we get in the movie.
1: I think that having them survive warrants when Chris dies, them all coming back together a little bit. Almost a scene of that, which I know I didn't have time for it. And I don't know that I wanted that necessarily, but I do think that there's that it leaves that idea in your mind.
0: Yeah, you know, why not look them up? But I think that goes back to what I was saying before, though. I, I, I think that something fundamentally changed when he they, the other two fled. Yeah. And that's why he But
1: even complain. so, the death of one of them you would think would at least warrant like a phone call or something. I, I think it just had a it, it packed a, a stronger punch for me. When I read the story, I was like, Oh fuck, like that it's is It's a so, different note to end on. It's very yeah, it is yeah, kind of a it's such a heavy blow. And um and then it also fulfills the coin flip thing, yeah. which I thought was really mysterious and weird, and
0: then they did it in the film, it didn't fulfil. Yeah, that's it. true. It's although he's the only one who got out, so you could say that's a fulfillment of it in and of itself. Um yeah, okay. Well, uh, let's talk about this final scene. He he writes those final lines. He goes out to play with his kids. It is a it is a more hopeful note, I think. It's it's him, it's him realizing that his he has like a little smile where I think he's realizing that like his children are going through that time now and maybe with his wisdom that he's gained and and the memories that he's just relived, he can bring that to his Family relationship is kind of my reading of this. Again, this is a different note to end on than what uh, what we got from Stephen King here. And I think this is Rob Reiner putting his touch on it here and saying this is the story he wants to tell. Um, and It sounds like it was effective for King at least. So we're kind of wrapping
1: up here and... I think it's so funny that this nudge nudge kind of thing that goes on with Stephen King is like continue it's continues today it was around in the 80s I'm sure it was it's always been around but this idea that like his characters will lampshade the end, the ending wasn't that good because Teddy uh, when he complains about Gordy's story not having a good ending. Oh yeah, it's from the novella, right? Like it is. And then and then it shows up here too, and like it's so funny to me. It is. It is like I, I think Stephen King must think it's hilarious at this point too. And It's like I I think it's been. I think it's clear that he has written a few really good endings, yeah. but some of the time, it, it, and this this being one of them, I think. Yeah. Too. Like, no,
0: I, I told you I really liked the ending of the novella, and I like the ending of this movie too even though they are a little different. Yeah,
1: And I, but I think it, it, it's really funny to think it, it is so difficult to write ending. We start, I, I feel like every single Stephen King episode we may have mentioned that, but
0: <laughs> yeah. it's crazy. Totally true. To okay, so we are going to decide now, we're going to vote on what we liked better. And um, I already feel that this is going to be a difficult one. Uh, and then, oh, I did want to say, stick around to the end of the episode. We're going to be talking about our Patreon poll that is up right now for our next episode potential project and we'll list the three titles that are in contention so if you're curious about that make sure to stick around but okay so do you want to start this one off
1: sure yeah i was pretty shocked at how how great this novella was i kind of thought that it was going to be sort of just a flash in the pan sort of thing where i just read it and i forget about it but i think it will stick with me it's a shorter stephen king work and i'm so used to his like bigger stuff and thinking about the you know, magnum opuses that he's written. I don't know which one you would say was his actual magnum opus, but so many like- Good question. Big, big books that that everyone is aware of. And like this one is not talked about very no. much. But, and this story really is going to stick with me, I think. And it's 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 so cool to get into Stephen King outside of horror. I thought, mm-hmm. I think that was like a fun step to take. Um, but for this case, I am going to take the film. It, the way that he, Rob Reiner captured the nostalgia of this time period, and then for the 80s, we talked about- How some of these are nostalgia for, like, so Stranger Things is a nostalgic trip for people who grew up in the 80s who are adults now. I was the kid watching Stand By Me, kind of reacting to the 50s and not really, you know, I didn't have a ton of exposure to stuff like that. I hadn't seen a lot of older film yet. And uh, Real quick, there's something cool about seeing, like,
0: what it was like for your parents when they were kids too, right? Right. Something kind of neat about
1: that. Just the way that he captured this group of young boys and the way that, like, that speaks to my nostalgia and thinking of friends in the way that like true friends will stick out a lot of different situations and a lot of this is straight from the book but seeing it represented with actors like river phoenix and will wheaton and and some of these people that i like identified with so much um it's it's really going to stick with me and then it's kind of this it's this magical film that i don't think could be made today or or if it was made i don't know how popular it may be Mm just based on the fact that it's not super flashy on the surface, but it's got, but it's got a really strong story to it. And it's, it's uh you know, it's a very genuine story.
0: Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I can't argue with you. Um, I'll just tell you where I'm at. So I didn't really remember the movie much at all, even though I knew broadly what it was about. And I read this novella and I was surprised as you just kind of talked about it, like totally surprised that this thing rockets up the list of like my favorite Stephen King things I've read. Now I love Stephen King's imagination and his speculative elements are always so good that I don't think it would overtake all of those for me because that is what he's like so good at. And like the best of the best of his work tends to be very genre, very like horror heavy. Um, But this is right up there with a lot of them because it is, it is showing a different side to his writing. He's talking, he's, he's writing in a literary mode and I, I really broke that down on our last episode, like why I liked that so much. Um, and then I saw this movie and I was like, there's no way, there's no way it's going to live up um, because I liked it so much, right? I was like, "It can't. And, and I was astounded with how good this thing really was um, and how it it was so faithful and nailed so many of the sequences. And it, it honestly does everything like I want from a faithful adaptation, for a source material that I really enjoyed. Um, So I got to give it like tons and tons of accolades, but when it comes down to it, if I had to vote for what it is, what's the best? I think it's the novella. I know that's not going to be as popular with a lot of fans of this movie, um, but it just edges it out for me. And if you haven't read it, I do highly recommend it. It's not super long, but it does add, I think, some more detail and some more texture to this adventure these kids go on and it's, it's, it's not going to feel different. Like it's not going to feel like a different story. It's going to still feel like this story um, because they're very close. So not to mention,
1: it's good to like inform on Stephen King as an author, you know, like to get, to get this other side of him to kind of get, this is what we talked about. It's kind of a a story that he's telling of certain events that he did experience. Um, And if I was to put one more point in the corner for the film, I should have mentioned uh, the fact that the song
0: is incredible. So stand By <laughs> Me being in the film is so good. Okay, fair enough. You could listen to it while reading if you wanted to. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I, no. I since I just mentioned the book, I did want to point out something that I often forget to say. We have a bookshop website, um, and it'll be linked in the show notes. And if you go on and if you click on that link down there, we have the different seasons collection by Stephen King that contains the, the body, and it also has uh, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, which would go on to be the Shawshank Redemption, Apt People, uh, I forget what the fourth one is, um, but it's got these a collection of novellas. And uh, if you were to buy it using the link that we have down there, uh, you would be supporting our podcast. So we'd greatly appreciate that. Check that out if that interests you.
1: Also, if you like this episode, please let us know in the form of a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Uh, it really helps to get the word out there and to, you know, Spread the gospel of Ink to
0: Film. <laughs> Absolutely, uh, we just got a, a new one recently that uh, that made my day. It was talking about how we keep getting better, which you know warmed my heart. So, and that was uh, just got to shout them out. That was by Soboyan. Which, sorry if I'm saying that wrong. With it, that's who it's from.
1: Very cool. I, we appreciate that. Uh, also, if you wanted to check us out on social media, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All of those at Ink to Film. And we also have a Patreon.
0: Yeah, on our Patreon, we uh, just narrowed it down to our top three projects that are going to be voted on by patrons only to determine what our next project is. If you are listening to this the day it comes out or on Friday, the following day, uh, you still have a chance to go vote. I'm going to close voting at the end of the day Friday just to give us enough time to read whatever it is we're reading. Uh, But it's been narrowed down to three. And here they are. Casino Royale, which is like, I think the first Bond book. Um, not 100% sure. Again, I haven't read it, but uh, Ian Fleming. Um, Fight Club, famous. Everybody knows Fight Club, right? Uh, and also 2001 A Space Odyssey, another Kubrick film. Uh, so, which of those? would you most like to hear us talk about if you're if you're you're catching this episode fresh uh you can jump over onto patreon and cast your vote and you also get access to all of our bonus episodes on there which we have like almost 50 of now uh about all kinds of other things like clueless and other stuff that we do and we'll be doing another one this month don't know what it's going to be yet but we do them every month all right that's going to be it for stand by me and the body don't know exactly what we'll be covering next week but we should know soon So uh, check that out. And until next time, keep adapting.